Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today, we are speaking with Alexandra Mitchell, who also goes by Alex, who is from Australia, about her experiences and opinions on the endometriosis standard of care. Alex has a decade worth of professional experience among government, education, media, and nonprofit organizations. Alex is also a podcaster herself. She's the creator and host of the Invisible Iconic podcast. And additionally, she's contributed to historical critiques of Australia and Romanian's standard of health care in the book, Good Girl, Bad Period, Breaking the Silence on Misogyny and Gaslighting Through the Lens of Endometriosis, which is by Sylvia Young. So this episode is really a part of a short series that we are doing on endometriosis care and experiences globally. You know, the problems with care, with misinformation, with lack of access to excision. These are problems that the endometriosis community faces worldwide. These are global problems. And we want to highlight the voices of a few advocates worldwide who are doing great work and who can speak on obstacles to care that they've come across and also report on obstacles to care that members of their respective regional support groups have experienced. Please keep in mind, however, that while our guests share their experiences and opinions, they don't speak for or represent all of the people in their country or region, just like when I speak about the care I've experienced in the United States, I'm not speaking for every person's experience in the United States either. Many of our experiences are similar, but they're also each unique and individual to all of us, and they vary widely. All of the opinions expressed by the interviewees on this podcast are their own. My name is Alex and my pronouns are she and her and I'm the creator and host of the Invisible Iconic podcast and you can find me on Spotify and YouTube and Instagram. Um, So that's at Invisible Iconic as well as on Facebook, Twitter and TikTok but I am most active on Instagram. So essentially I'm I'm an advocate but I'm very much an endometriosis an endometriosis sufferer myself, as well as um, having other chronic illnesses. So it's an ongoing battle, and that's why I'm actively advocating. Well, thank you, Alex, for introducing yourself, and also just thank you for all of your dedication and commitment to the endometriosis community. And I'll also go ahead and point out that you are based in Australia. To start, let me ask you the question I've been asking the other people I've interviewed for this series. What does typical endometriosis care look like in your country? And of course, we're speaking generally and from your own experience as well, but just typically, what have you come across from your own experience and from speaking with others, from your advocacy work? 
what does endometriosis care look like in Australia? So from my own experience, as well as the experience of a lot of people that I communicate with online, so it is a lot of anecdotal evidence, a lot of anecdotal stories, but then we know from recent publications um, through our national organisations, as well as the guidelines, that the first-line treatments for endometriosis are, as they have been for a long, long time, oral contraceptives and hormonal medical treatment, hormonal contraception. Then they move on to things like gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists or antagonists. And they tell us, according to the guidelines, that should be for three months. So it's a, it's a three-month trial. And depending on how you react to these treatments and whether the medical treatments help your symptoms or not, they deduce whether you have endometriosis just based off that sometimes. So it's very difficult to get to that final stage of laparoscopic surgery, which we know um, since, you know, like we know, for example, in the 2014 European Society for Human Reproduction and Embryology guidelines, that laparoscopy and histological verification of the, of the tissue, of the biopsy tissue, is the gold standard for both diagnosis and management of the disease. But unfortunately, we're really moving away from that at the moment. So that final step of laparoscopic surgery it's difficult to access, but even when you get to it, the majority of people having laparoscopic surgeries, most of the time it's ablation. So they're not actually removing the disease in its entirety. In your own experience, have you found many doctors that you've seen in your country to be knowledgeable on endometriosis? Unfortunately, the knowledge base in Australia from various medical professionals is quite limited. And I don't think that that is indicative of anything particularly um, specific to Australia. I think that that's something all around the world. I think both the taboos around menstruation as well as the fact that the ma majority of management and treatment for this disease is based on a now debunked theory a debunked 1928 theory of retrograde menstruation. So we've got a combination of in medical literature. So all the textbooks that the doctors are reading are telling them, you know, even if it's saying that it's a systemic inflammatory chronic disease, at the same time, they're adding that component of, you know, menstrual disorder, hormonal disorder, and so it keeps us stuck in the Middle Ages. It keeps, us, it keeps us stuck in this concept that this disease is only about periods, only happens to women, and perhaps there's an element of infertility or people assume that everybody with endometriosis is, in, is infertile. So often when we go to doctors uh, as an initial step, usually our primary care pro providers, so our general practitioners, which, you know, our GPs, uh, when we go and see them, they implement these first-line treatments, second-line treatments, but it takes a long, long time to sort of get from that first step of, doctor, there's something not right here, 
to diagnosis. And even when we achieve diagnosis, for us patients, the lived experience of patients in Australia is that diagnosis is not therapy. We are not only chasing diagnosis. Those of us who have gone through all of the first, second and third line treatments for endometriosis and have had multiple unsuccessful either ablations or some of us have even had excisions, which was meant to be the gold standard of endometriosis and we consider it, patients still consider it the gold standard for endometriosis diagnosis because of the histological confirmation. So we know when we take away that bit of tissue and we examine it and we can see that it has estrogen, progesterone receptors, we can analyze it and say, yes, this disease is endometriosis. If we don't have that step, then we don't know what we're looking at. So often in Australia, especially in the absence of that uh, histopathological confirmation of the disease, in my experience, in the experience of people that I speak to, in the experience of people that have signed a petition in response to these treatments, in response to the, the guiding principles, the guidelines for endometriosis, Many of us feel the same, that our doctors are not knowledgeable about endometriosis. And it's not necessarily pointing the finger at the doctors themselves or it's beyond even the guidelines. The medical literature needs to change. If we have at least 20, report, you know, 20 cases of cis males with endometriosis, and that's, you can imagine that, you can multiply that number by a lot more. That's only what's found in the medical literature. We know that what ends up in literature, what ends up in medical journals is dependent on things like funding, is dependent on profit, is dependent on vested interests. And, you know, it may sound conspiratorial, but this is, this is the world we live in. Um, medicine is big business. And unfortunately, we've, we endometriosis patients in Australia have, particularly those of us that have deep infiltrating endometriosis or even atypical presentations or what's considered atypical presentations of endometriosis, extra pelvic endometriosis in locations like the thoracic region, so your lungs, diaphragm, we are completely sidelined in Australia. I actually had to seek treatment Elsewhere, I have been to two other countries for consultations with expert excision specialists. And the type of endometriosis that I deal with um, is extrapelvic, is deep infiltrating, and I didn't really struggle with it until I was about 26 and I had my first ablation surgery. And I have had numerous iatrogenic effects from both treatments of endometriosis and, and, and surgical management, incomplete surgical management, or for example, in the case of the ablation, I had you know nerve pain that I never had prior to the surgery. And unfortunately, the medical management of the treatments that I have tried have led to many other complications and comorbidities. So in my experience with at least 10 gynecologists, about six pain specialists, 
three or four general practitioners, gastroenterologists, immunologists, two rheumatologists, and I could go on. This disease is very much in the dark ages. The medical literature needs to catch up. The guidelines need to catch up. And the patients that are presenting with this disease need to be empowered to be able to explain their symptoms, track their symptoms, and use existing literature, existing bodies of evidence to support the fact that what's happening to them isn't normal and isn't necessarily helped by the pill. And even post-surgical management, if the surgeons themselves are not trained in expert excision, which we know that you know, an advanced laparoscopic surgeon is fantastic for all other types of disease, but they may not necessarily know how to visualize the multiple colors and stages of the disease and how to remove it, how to excise it properly from the root, not just ablated, causing scar tissue and more problems for the patient. Thank you, Alex, for outlining your experience with endometriosis over the years and the difficulty that it has been to get care. This is a common theme that is being repeated in this series that I'm doing, interviewing people with endometriosis worldwide, and it just keeps coming up as I suspected that it would, because as you said, these problems are not specific to any country or any governing body, any guidelines. There's no singling out here. There's no putting blame on a specific person or group or organization. What this is about is taking a bird's eye look at how endometriosis is seen worldwide, how endometriosis patients are treated worldwide and the care that we are receiving. You know, recently I was looking at the NICE guidelines and there was not even a mention of extrapelvic endometriosis, I believe, don't quote me here, until the um, UK all parliamentary party, I believe they're called, they did like an assessment of how the guidelines are being implemented in the UK. And one of their points, like their COAs, their courses of action was that more attention needs to be paid to people with extra pelvic endometriosis because there wasn't like a clear defined route for people with extra pelvic disease. So there's so many problems across the world. It's just astounding how, how abysmal care is. Now, something that you mentioned as you were talking was the endometriosis guidelines. Kate and I, we did an episode together, Kate from Endogirls blog. Uh, which has already aired. And we talked throughout the episode about what are endometriosis guidelines. And we explained about how endometriosis guidelines are really practice points for gynecologists and for doctors to understand how to treat endometriosis. There are different guidelines worldwide. Uh, There are at least nine that I know of. And the different guidelines are based on different research. And therefore, there are discrepancies within the guidelines when you compare them from one to another. So in Australia, there's been a movement to change the guidelines. Will you tell us a little bit more about the Australian guidelines and about this movement? Yes, Amy. So as you've rightly mentioned, the guidelines for endometriosis management and care, treatment, management, diagnosis and care in Australia 
in my opinion and in the opinion of a lot of people who suffer with the disease are problematic. And they're not the only ones that are problematic, as you rightfully mentioned. They are based on different bodies of evidence, but the primary issue that we encounter with a lot of these guidelines is that some of the more problematic recommendations are actually based on the opinions of expert working groups. So they will often have a list of people, you know, let's say 10 different people that have come together to provide from the background of, of their own fields, their own experiences and their own positions, body of work, etc., to provide opinion on the guidelines and how to best proceed. In 2014, I mentioned the European Society for Human Reproductive and Embryology guidelines stating very clearly that laparoscopy is important for both diagnosis and treatment. And that's the very important part, the treatment of endometriosis. Because we do have a lot of laparoscopies being performed that are called diagnostic, where they go in and the incisions happen, you go in the abdomen, you look around the pelvis, but nothing is actually done, particularly when a surgeon is not really skilled to remove it from some of the areas it may be seen. You also mentioned the NACE guidelines, so the National Institute for Healthcare and Excellence, and they published their the guideline in 2017. And the Australian guideline is actually based on specifically the NACE guideline. Now, the issue being that in, in 2021, so last year, the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists published this clinical guideline on the diagnosis and management of endometriosis. We endometriosis sufferers are happy that this disease is being looked at to begin with, that discussion is occurring around endometriosis diagnosis and care, that expert working groups are being convened with what they view as an interdisciplinary approach. So they will often have people with different backgrounds, such as Chinese medicine, dietitians, pelvic physiotherapists, providing their input into the recommendations of this guideline. The issue that we come across is that there are not many excision, if any, this is around the world, but there are not many, if any, excision specialists, so endometriosis excision trained specialists, on these expert working groups. So the people who are actually treating us, particularly those of us who suffer from deep infiltrating and extra pelvic disease, are not even part of the discussions, let alone the patients that present with more severe disease, atypical disease. Now, granted, I will say that there was a consultation period in Australia that both endometriosis sufferers and advocates were involved uh, to some extent in the consultation of these guidelines. But as we know, endometriosis affects everybody, every person differently. And the experience of somebody who might only have superficial disease or primarily be affected with infertility in their specific case, or perhaps don't have pain so severe, 
that it leads them to seek care in other countries because in Australia they're being told that it's impossible to have extra pelvic disease in the absence of stage four endometriosis in the pelvis. Not only does current literature from this year, I mean, I can provide at least five references off the top of my head for peer-reviewed articles that show that excision is incredibly important in comparison to ablation, specifically in the removal of extrapelvic endometriosis. And although the guidelines in terms of, of the organization of care for deep infiltrating endometriosis, so if they suspect that you have deep infiltrating endometriosis, according to the guideline, they should have an advanced laparoscopic surgeon. But as I mentioned earlier, that does not make them an endometriosis excision specialist. A colorectal surgeon, urologist with an interest in endo, so not just any urologist, they have to have an interest in endometriosis, endo specialist nurse, pelvic pain specialist, gynae imaging specialist, fertility specialist. So they do recommend, they do outline that this section of the disease might be more complicated and might require a more multidisciplinary approach. Now, here's where we come into a really big problem. And that problem leads to so many of us being swept under the rug and pushed on to other medical treatment that according to their own guideline, there's no evidence for. So things like anti-neuropathic medication, so neuropathic pain medication being given to us when first-line treatments haven't worked, second-line treatments haven't worked, surgeries haven't worked, and or made things worse. Why? Because they're the wrong surgeries. And what we know is that in the glossary of the endometriosis guideline itself, there's no differentiation between ablation and excision. Ablation and excision aren't even mentioned in the glossary, only laparoscopy. We know that the disclaimer is really carefully worded. So unfortunately, there's no, there's no liability. As you said, it's a guide. It's a guide only. So if the guideline itself is problematic and there's no liability there, then whatever the doctor and the treating medical team chooses to do, you know, there's, there's so much gray area there. So the guidelines is seeking to provide the best available scientific evidence so that they can assist with the detection of both diagnosis and management of the disease. But Unfortunately, as I mentioned, a lot of these recommendations that we have issue with that are making laparoscopic surgery even harder to access, so forget about excision, but just laparoscopic surgery to really look and to see, visualize the disease is being made less accessible. So the guideline is meant to improve the quality of life for Australian endometriosis patients. But what we have found is that this approach that's happening all around the world of, in, in their eyes, trying to make it easier for us without surgical intervention, this approach is actually leading to a lot of harm and a very big decrease in the quality of life for those of us that are living with deep infiltrating endometriosis, extrapelvic endometriosis, particularly if it isn't seen on imaging, which in Australia mine wasn't. I had to have a very specialized MRI that doesn't exist in my country. So 
we won't even get to the stage of surgery if that imaging doesn't show anything. We won't get to that stage, but we know in our case, you can give me all the Chinese medicine you want, which according to the guidelines is no evidence that it helps specifically endometriosis progression or anything like that. You can give multiple ablations, even if you get to the stage of laparoscopic surgery for patients with extra pelvic involvement and more severe disease, more advanced disease, multiple ablations will definitely cause iatrogenic effects, will definitely make things worse for those of us whose disease is under the surface. It's like an iceberg and they need to get underneath and cut it out from the bottom, not just burn the top of the disease. There's a lot of complex issues there because it is meant, the guideline is meant to have a lot of consensus-based recommendations. But then when we look at the lessons that these working groups and, you know, these endometriosis governing bodies in Australia, the lessons that they have learned from, for example, our national action plan, there really seems to be this further push for equating laparoscopy with, you know, it's an antiquated approach to primarily diagnosis, even though it leaves room for, yes, you know, you might need a laparoscopy for treatment if you get to that stage that you need bowel resections, etc. It leaves room for that. But how can you get to that stage if you need it, if those first line, second line treatments are actually impediments, are actually obstacles to you getting the diagnosis? Because I had a horrible response to the second line treatments, for example, the the GnRH antagonist is what I had. I had an absolutely horrible reaction and it was completely outside of what they had expected. I wasn't on hormone replacement therapy because I couldn't be on it because of another comorbidity. So if you are atypical in any sense, you're going to have an extremely difficult time, even in a country like Australia, even if, if you are a cis woman who's educated and histopathological confirmation of extra pelvic disease. So I had it found on my ureter in my second surgery, but it's very much this idea that you had it, it's gone. Right. So the fact that it was found to begin with in extra pelvic locations implies that there is a possibility that you have it in other places that are also extra pelvic because the disease has progressed to that point. But really, it's very much like a well, that ablation showed only this much. So six months later, I had to have a second surgery, a second laparoscopy, where obviously a lot more disease was found, extra pelvic disease. And then because of my response to these second line treatments, we ended up doing the whole pain specialist and all these other things. So what the lessons that these experts are putting forth to us from the action plan is that, well, surgery is just so expensive, you know, so we're going to make it easier for you so you can have less risky diagnostic methods, such as imaging, for example. And that's all good and well if those diagnostic methods actually picked up my disease. So I'm speaking from my own experience. These diagnostic methods do not mean therapy. And even if they pick it up, they will put you on the second line treatments. It will be back to hormonal management, back to medical management of the disease, because we we don't want to make it worse for you. 
But if we actually had more excision specialists trained, then it would be more accessible. But it's really all a matter of funding because really what they're saying now is that, well, most patients are aware of the fact that excision is the gold standard, so they may not want, right? So it gets put back on us. You believe that excision is the gold standard and that apparently causes the diagnostic delay in both diagnosis and treatment. Now, I can tell our audience that in my own personal experience and the experience of so many of us, that isn't the case. That's not what's causing the delay. It's the other way around. I'm sorry, like I understand where the argument is trying to go, but the lived experience of so many of us is that that approach of, you know, hormonal management, even if it's a biopsychosocial approach and even if you're getting us to talk to a psychologist you're getting us to do Chinese medicine you're getting us to do that's going to mean nothing for me if I'm going to have kidney failure in five years because of silent kidney death from ureter and they're not being excised or if my lungs are collapsing for an extra pelvic endometriosis patient if you have any symptoms outside of these reproductive and you know to a further extent, they acknowledge bowel and bladder and such, but they will tell you it's irritable bowel syndrome. You know, you might go to a pelvic physio, but all of those things aren't going to mean much to me in the end. They may help a lot after surgery, but until I have that disease removed from my body, it will continue to cause me harm and, and cause those symptoms. And unfortunately, this idea that the people waiting to access excision surgery is causing and exacerbating the diagnostic delay and contributing to ongoing costs for the patient, I believe is completely incorrect, at least in my own lived experience and the experience of so many. It's the other way around. So even though laparoscopic excision, for example, might be expensive, please make it easier for us to access. So we just covered a lot of topics. As you were talking, I took some notes on things that I wanted to comment on. I think one of the first things is that when you're talking about the first line, second line treatments, just the hurdles to access surgery. And I think this is, this is something that first of all, that, you know, we see worldwide, but this is also something that we see reflected in the guidelines and in guidelines across the world. I mean, as we've already mentioned in previous episodes on this, you know, the ACOG guidelines, which is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, when they talk about surgical management of endometriosis, they don't distinguish between ablation and excision, except for the excision of an endometrioma, which, you know, I'm glad they mentioned that. Most guidelines mention that because they do feel that they have good quality evidence to mention that in the guidelines. Of course, we're not being offered excision and doctors are saying, well, we, we don't do excision or what is excision or, oh, excision surgeons, they're not, that's not a thing because when you have the guidelines that they're following, not mentioning it, well, of course they're baffled that why do these patients want excision surgery? Patients, many patients, not all patients, but many patients want excision surgery because they've gone through the gauntlet of hormones and they've gotten nowhere. And that's one of my big frustrations with the guidelines. Now, I have read 
all of the European guidelines, something like 280 plus pages. I have not read the Australian guidelines, but I have read the condensed version. So there is the NICE guidelines. So the Australian guidelines, as you said, are based on the NICE guidelines, which is the NG73, which were published in September 2017. And then they also brought in additional literature and the working groups to add to the guidelines. But I have read the NICE guidelines, not the full guidelines, because those are also like 300 pages long. But I've read select sections like the part on surgery, and I've read the condensed guideline summary and basically like the guideline bullets, because I also think one of the big things is that with the guidelines, I mean, these are like 300 pages of guidelines, right? And so if you have gynecologists who are OBGYNs, I don't think they're reading 300 pages worth of guidelines. Like I was reading the European guidelines because I'm a patient and I want to understand because as you said, these guidelines are guiding care across the world. And yes, it's true. I don't reside in, in Europe. Right. So these guidelines are not exactly pertaining to me, but, you know, the different guidelines are looked at when new guidelines are being formed. And I would hope that ACOG would be updating its guidelines soon, considering that the last time they updated them was in 2010. So I wanted to understand these brand new guidelines that these supposedly most up to date guidelines that came out about endometriosis. So I sat down and I read and I read and I read for weeks every day so I could know every single point on those guidelines. And I took a ton of notes. But my point is how many OBGYNs who are treating endometriosis, who are having patients come to them saying, I'm having painful sex, or I'm having shoulder pain during my period. It's really weird. Or I'm having pain with bowel movements. How many of these doctors are reading the full guidelines? I'm going to go ahead and probably say like very few doctors are reading the full guidelines. And what they're looking at is probably the bullet points the condensed summary, the recommendations. And what these do is they just like extract the points and like give practice points for the doctors. So I wanted to bring up something about the gauntlet of hormones because I'm sitting here looking at the NICE guidelines and they have like a flow chart. It's like nice flow chart where it's to guide and it says like, okay, you can suspect endometriosis if a patient has these various symptoms. I think all the symptoms are, you know, pretty spot on. I mean, I think there's some that they're missing, especially for extra pelvic endometriosis, but let's just say that like, okay, you know, you're teaching them, Hey, if, if they're having chronic pelvic pain, period related pain, deep pain during or after sexual intercourse, period related or cyclical gastrointestinal symptoms, in particular, painful bowel movements, period related or cyclical urinary symptoms, in particular, blood in the urine or pain passing urine, or infertility in association with one or more of the above. So that I just read directly from the NICE guidelines. Then it says suspect endometriosis, including in young people under 17 years old. But the problem that I have is, so the initial management is listed as a short trial, for example, three months of pain management, like paracetamol, something like a Tylenol, um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. Okay. If that's not working, consider the hormonal treatment combined contraceptive pill or progestin. And then if that's not working, consider referral to gynecology, right? And so they have this referral to gynecology and then within gynecology, then they have referral to 
So then they differentiate between gynecological services for people with endometriosis suspected or confirmed, and then specialist endometriosis services within endometriosis centers. There is a real difference between just the gynecological services and the specialist services within these NICE guidelines that are outlined. And so to read again from the NICE guidelines, the gynecological services would be a gynecologist with expertise in diagnosing and managing endometriosis, including training and skills in laparoscopic surgery. Now, the specialist center would have gynecologists with expertise in diagnosing and managing endometriosis, including advanced laparoscopic surgical skills. One of my pain points is what is considered advanced and what is considered non-advanced laparoscopic skills? Because we know that excision is advanced laparoscopic skills. And so it can be very hard to get pushed over into the endometriosis center from gynecology. And within gynecology, you know, they're saying, oh, well, we should have these gynecologists that can treat, that can manage the disease, that can diagnose the disease. But in the opinion, in my opinion, and the opinion of many leaders in the field, excision surgery should be on the table from day one. And that's something that we should be offered from day one. And if we're seeing gynecologists who supposedly can treat and manage the disease, but they just have basic laparoscopic skills, then in my opinion, they can't treat the disease. They could potentially manage the disease with hormones or some other alternative therapies, but they can't treat the disease. And so it's really hard for patients, even and especially patients with something like superficial endometriosis, it's extremely hard to get access to excision surgery because yes, when deep infiltrating endometriosis comes into play or endometriosis on the ureters, on the bowel, then it's more like, oh, these patients should be sent to these endometriosis centers. But what about the rest of the patients who don't have that? Are they not worthy of getting specialist care? Are they not worthy of getting excision if that's what they want? As not all patients would want that, but if that's what they want, And so that's one of the things with the guidelines for me is that, yes, there are these guidelines and they're saying, hey, okay, offer the initial treatment. Yeah, we should offer initial management. Does a patient want to be on hormones? If so, let's see if it works. Let's see if pain management works. But at what point do we kick them over to expert care? And that is what is taking way too long. We have patients who want to access expert care, but they can't access it until they've gone on 10 different types of hormones. Okay, you've gone on the OCPs, the oral contraceptive pills. Okay, those didn't work. Let's put you on progestins. Okay, well, those aren't working for you. They're not limiting your pain or you're having a lot of side effects. Okay, let's put you on GNRH, second line. Oh, let's do the agonist. Okay, that's not working. Let's do the antagonist. Okay, that's not working. Ooh, a new brand came out. Let's try that brand. Ooh, let's go back to progestins. Ooh, have you tried oral contraceptive pills? I know you said you have, but like, I don't think you've tried the patch, right? So let's put you on the patch. Oh, the patch didn't work. Let's put you on the marina. Oh, the marina IUD didn't work. Okay, let's try agonists again, but this time with add back. Oh, let's do this time without add back. And it's just like this, this circle of madness. And you're just like, I just want someone to remove the disease from my body. And see, for me, that's the big issue is I understand that patients can go through, let's do first line, second line, but excisions should be there from day one on the table as a choice. And patients are demanding it. Patients want it, but we can't get it because there are not enough skilled excision surgeons so that we cannot access it. 
it remains extremely expensive because it remains extraordinarily difficult to have because of so many systems in place, the reimbursement system, how few surgeons there are. There's a lot of different aspects we've talked about in many previous episodes about why excision is so inaccessible. While the guidelines intend to be based on evidence and up-to-date literature, and there is a lot of evidence and up-to-date literature in the guidelines, it's not reflecting the reality of the patient. Because when I read these guidelines and I read about how GnRH antagonists have reduced pain in X number of people and the side effects they say are, you know, so few or reversible, it's not reflecting the real reality is that yes, for some patients, medications have reduced their symptoms, but for many patients, they haven't. What about these patients? Why are they being left behind? And maybe while they are on symptom reduction, their disease is progressing and they're not told that their disease can progress. In fact, many are being actively told the opposite. Oh, when you go on this, your disease will stop progressing. Your disease will dry up. This is blatant misinformation. So when I look at the guidelines, it says that refer the person to a specialist endometriosis center. If they have suspected or confirmed deep endometriosis involving the bowel, bladder, or ureter, or for example, if the initial hormone treatment for endometriosis is not effective, not tolerated, or is contraindicated. And so again, we come back to that point. Who decides what constitutes a period of initial hormone treatment? Because while we know that it can be trial and error to find a hormone that could potentially work for the person in terms of reducing symptoms and not causing too many side effects, this is our lives that we're talking about. And while we're going through months, years of trying to find a hormone that works for us, we're losing quality of life. Our disease is potentially progressing. And so I don't feel that these guidelines support the actual reality of the devastation of this disease, because this isn't a paper cut. This isn't a stub toe. This is people screaming and writhing during bowel movements. This is people passing out. This is people who can't hold a job because they're too sick. This is people whose lives are effectively put on hold and there are financial, emotional, and physical, psychological repercussions of having this disease and not getting the treatment that we need, which is why we're so passionate about advocating. And when I compare the, per the NICE guidelines, the difference between the gynecological services for people with suspected or confirmed endometriosis versus the specialist endometriosis services, something else that it says here is a healthcare professional with an interest in gynecological imaging. That is under the gynecological services. Whereas under the specialist endometriosis services, we hear a healthcare professional with specialist expertise in gynecological imaging of endometriosis. We also have advanced diagnostic facilities, for example, radiology and histopathology under the expert or the specialist endometriosis services. So to go back to your point, how difficult is it to get diagnosed with endometriosis when we're being referred to these general gynecological services who just need to have a healthcare professional with an interest in gynecological imaging? I don't want a healthcare professional with an interest in imaging. I want an expert who can read my scans, who can take my scans properly, because without that, it is very common and happens to 
millions of us worldwide that our images are quote unquote negative when they weren't done correctly, they weren't read correctly, because we know that reading of the images is operator dependent and depends on the expertise. So there is just the reality that we're living versus what the guidelines put out. And I just did the NICE guidelines here because I have them in front of me and I read them. But the guidelines outline care that just does not reflect what we need in the real world. So you've rightly pointed out a few things that are really exactly the same in the Australian context. And primarily what I want to know is why the guidelines changed to begin with. Because as I've mentioned, you know, we know the the ones like back from 2014 were saying, yes, laparoscopic surgery and specifically excision as well is important. So why are they changing? Why are they changing? Why do we see that being replicated in other places around the world? When you mentioned in terms of the advanced laparoscopic surgeon versus the endometriosis specialist, in Australia, they have to be a level six advanced laparoscopic trained surgeon. But the issue is they may be skilled to remove extensive cancers, fibroids, you know, very advanced surgery in that regard. And gynecological surgery is most certainly complex. But what we know is endometriosis excision is one of the hardest specialties, one of the most complex specialties that exists. Because when you're an endometriosis excision specialist, particularly when you're dealing with extra pelvic endometriosis, you're not going to be going in if your specialty is gynecology, even if you're an expert in the disease, some of the top international centers for endometriosis that deal with complex cases day in, day out, will be consulting with colorectal surgeons, urologists, cardiothoracic surgeons. So they know what multidisciplinary actually means. But when you're talking about that imaging, even if it shows deep infiltrating endometriosis, and we don't just look at the reproductive system, and we don't just look at what they're calling endometriosis transvaginal ultrasounds or endometriosis MRI, just because you put endometriosis before it doesn't mean that the imaging, that the machine itself has changed in any way, that the specificity of you know, the ability for the for the machine to visualize these more complex types of endometriosis where it's like a bit of fat in a steak as opposed to a big mass that can be seen on imaging and removed. The visualization is the problem. As you've rightly said, how they interpret it is the problem. But even if you have all that and even if the imaging shows exactly what is in your body and what they're suspecting is exactly what they end up finding. If they don't go to that final stage of surgery and they just put you on the hormones, as you've said, it continues to progress. And that's exactly what's happening in Australia. But unfortunately, then we're being told it's central sensitization and we're left it at that. Even if it is central sensitization after repeated surgeries, traumas to the central nervous system, whether it's other central sensitivity syndromes, PTSD, et cetera, all of these impact. Like, yes, we do need a biopsychosocial or as they're calling it, a biopsychospiritual management plan, like a, a new medical benefits scheme, medical brand. That's literally what they're calling it. We need that, but I don't need biopsychosocial spiritual care. I need you to remove it so I don't have kidney failure. And no amount of 
praying it away, Chinese herbs, all of these things can help, as you've said, with symptom management. But in terms of treatment, we are extremely limited. And although they're getting excited in Australia specifically about things like artificial intelligence guided algorithms in diagnosis of endometriosis with the imaging, and I'm not a Luddite, I'm not going to say, no, I only want to be cut open and that's it. And that's unfortunately what the kickback has been in terms of the change the guidelines movement. We're kind of getting this rhetoric, this narrative that, you know, we're stuck in the, we're dinosaurs and we're stuck in the past and things have moved on now and we're making it easier for you endometriosis sufferers and you should be happy. But just because you think you're making it easier to diagnose, until you get that histopathological confirmation, you don't know what's in there. It could be any other disease. I could have cancer that's missed because you're putting me on hormones or giving me the marina coil instead of actually training the specialists that we need. One of the huge problems is that guidelines get misinterpreted. As we said, they're not reading the full guidelines. And in the full guidelines, they still mention that a diagnostic laparoscopy can be useful for the patient for a variety of reasons and can be discussed with the patient as an option. But what we're seeing is that articles are coming out saying, oh, guess what? You don't need surgery to diagnose endometriosis anymore. You can diagnose it with an ultrasound. And one of the big problems of these blanket statements or generalizations or misinterpretations of that is that now we have seen doctors and we've already known this for years. I mean, I remember 10, 15 years ago going for an ultrasound because a doctor suspected endometriosis. I was living in Spain and I went to a doctor in Spain and he said, I think you have endometriosis. He did an ultrasound. He did not find anything. And he said, you don't have endometriosis because there's nothing on your ultrasound. And we know that this is a repeated story for people with endometriosis. And I think if we're going to have changes to the guidelines, we also need to have education and awareness among the doctors that a negative scan does not mean you don't have endometriosis, that these scans need to be read by experts, that there needs to be training. Like there just, there needs to be follow-up, not just, okay, the guideline changed. Now we're playing a different ball game. Well, then let's have everyone playing the game, learn the rules. Let's have everyone playing the game, get training. Let's have a coach that teaches us how to play this new game. And that's not happening. And even with the NICE guidelines, you know, I read the, as I said, the UK parliamentary report, which I believe came out in 2021. And it was looking at how endometriosis, how the guidelines were implemented in the UK. And all throughout that parliamentary report, it just kept saying, These guidelines have not been implemented. People cannot access endometriosis care. Extra pelvic care has been forgotten. So these guidelines come out, as we've seen with the NICE guidelines in the UK, they come out, but then the way that the doctors treat the patients is not getting updated. The guidelines are not being implemented. They don't have the endometriosis centers, however many few, but they don't have, you know, the care that we thought it would lead to. And that's also a major problem. So guidelines change and maybe a few in the field or who offer expert care, able to interpret these guidelines, give care based on these guidelines, but the rest of the doctors can't. Another point in terms of the imaging is that even if you think you have the most specialized machine that exists in the country, 
for visualizing and therefore diagnosing the disease. It really depends on what areas of the body you're scanning as well. A transvaginal guided ultrasound, even if it's an endometriosis specific one, is still only scanning a very specific part of my body. Now, if I have extra pelvic symptoms and I go to the doctor, the specialist, and tell them I've got things going on under my rib cage, I've got, like you said, shoulder pain, I've got sciatic pains, that doesn't get, you know, I might have an MRI. But that's still not going to show. I've had MRIs in Australia on the same locations, but they weren't specific enough. They weren't able to visualize the nerves. So it depends on so many different things, like you said. The other thing is in terms of the expense, you know, the, the cost, the inaccessibility of excision, you know, we have... A really big country here in Australia. It's a really big country. And we've got people living in regional and rural and remote areas that have even less access. So if those of us with either superficial or severe disease, and you know, you can have superficial endometriosis, we know that staging doesn't correlate with the severity of symptoms, you can have People like us in in major, you know, capital metropolitan cities, unable to access these gold standard treatments. What about those people who, you know, it takes them a month to be able to get, or even longer, to get to the general practitioner, even if they have health insurance and they're paying out of pocket. And even if they get through that first hurdle of making the appointment in terms of location, getting to, you know, social isolation, all sorts of things, all sorts of barriers, even if they get to that stage, when they finally get to that provider, then you've got the provider not knowing much about the disease because why? They keep basing all of our treatments on retrograde menstruation. Of course, when they're talking finally about extrapelvic endometriosis, they only mention bladder, bowel, etc. Not just because they're the most commonly found locations of extrapelvic disease, but because it's easier to talk about those locations because, hey, they're still sort of found in the pelvis, around the pelvis. But the moment they're going to acknowledge that men are having this disease, that people who've had hysterectomies and have already gone through menopause are having this disease, trans people, this isn't just about gender identity this is a disease that has been found in all sex variations it's been found in animals that both menstruate and don't it's been found in fetuses so the moment that our national bodies and our guidelines acknowledge that this is a systemic chronic inflammatory disease that is not just confined to the reproductive organs or pelvis or that sort of region and that has multiple effects on our bodies beyond infertility and pain The other thing is in terms of the barriers and impairments, you know, we know the United Nations Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, so that was made in 1979, and, you know, many of our countries are signatories to these conventions. We know that they say disability results from the interaction between persons with impairments and attitudinal and environmental barriers that hinder their full and effective participation in society on an equal basis to others. So when you're saying, what about that percent of us with superficial endo? 
that distinction, see this like, oh, us and them attitude, these are actually created within the system because guess what? We're actually all in the same boat. Whether you're the percent that's superficial and your disease can't be seen or you're deep infiltrating endometriosis, I'm atypical deep infiltrating endometriosis. Was my disease seen on imaging in Australia? No. So we're actually all in the same boat really when it comes to imaging and or hormonal and medical management because why every single person is different every single body is different you know some of us react well to estrogen some don't some react well to progesterone some don't but let's stick to the basics of what we've said for so many years which is this is a disease that needs to be removed out of the body it's a physical organic disease it's not just let me do imaging and pray it away i'm a huge fan of a biopsychosocial approach to disease in general, especially to chronic pain. But it always makes me think, and of course, this is my own case, but this is the case of many, many people worldwide who, you know, I think of my own case. I didn't know what I had. Actually, the doctor told me, the doctor, a doctor did a laparoscopic surgery, a diagnostic laparoscopy when I was 19, said, oh, you don't have endometriosis, looks all shiny and beautiful in there. And then a year later, another doctor, um, so that was in the United States, then I was in Spain, and another doctor did the the ultrasound and was like, oh, you don't have endometriosis because it's not your ultrasound. I didn't know anything about endometriosis then. I just knew two people told me I didn't have this thing called endometriosis, so I mustn't have it, right? Anyway, you know, the typical story, test over test is negative. No one knows what's wrong. Okay, so go and embrace the biopsychosocial approach total diet change, anti-inflammatory diet, started getting my eight hours of sleep. I was super diligent and I would go as far to say rigid, um, but super diligent about my health for a whole decade because I did see that my diet and my lifestyle made a difference, you know, in the way that I felt. But you know what really, really, really helped me? Excision surgery and removing my disease at the root. And multidisciplinary care is vital, but excision is the cornerstone of the multidisciplinary care. And there are people who make a diet change or get better sleep and their symptoms completely go away. And that's amazing. That is amazing. And that is wonderful. But that's not the case for the majority of us. And the majority of us are trying year after year, thing after thing, hormones and medications and pain management and apps and lifestyle modifications. And, you know, central sensitization was part of my pain story, but I was not able to tackle my central sensitization until I had my excision. You know, until I had my excision and my endometriosis removed, first of all, my inflammation went way down. Like suddenly I could tolerate all these foods that I could not tolerate for, you know, a decade and a half. So the the difference is surreal. And I think many of us, we can't tackle all of these co-conditions until we've had our disease removed because the disease is in there and it's doing stuff. You know, it's not just tissue. It's not just like, oh, it's this ugly looking tissue. There's a whole inflammatory processes going on. Tissue is letting off mediators. It's causing angiogenesis, neurogenesis. It's causing it's causing blood vessels to grow and go to the area. It's causing nerves to form. 
there, there are so many processes and I don't have the biology before me right now, but trust me, there are many more ways that it affects the body on a full body level. And without proper care, it can be really, really hard for the majority of us to see true relief. Because yeah, I had some relief when I was, you know, for the decade that I was managing my endometriosis with diet and lifestyle, but it was so stressful because I, everything that I did, did or did not make me sick, which caused a lot of pressure, which caused a lot of rigidness, which made it impossible to be spontaneous, impossible to live the life that I wanted because I had to go to bed at 1030 every single night and I could never, ever stray from my diet, which means I couldn't travel and blah, blah, blah. And we shouldn't have to live like that. We should be given the option. Not everyone has an excision surgery success story, and that is a reality, but many people do. And I also include in those success stories the people who didn't have full immediate relief post-excision, but they needed more time for their body to settle and to work on co-conditions like, like a tight pelvic floor. And then they saw significant relief. So excision as the first step, as that cornerstone to the multidisciplinary approach. And I think we should be listening to these thousands of success stories and more research and more training should be going into these modalities like excision that are helping people like many of the listeners who could not find relief after decades of exploring every single option. I will say that unfortunately in my case, I still have had incomplete excision. So even if you get to the stage that you have excision, now just because excision surgery didn't work for you, that's not the fault of the mode. That's not a, a, of the modality of the excision. That's unfortunately a reflection on the skills of the surgeon, which is a reflection on the training available in, you know, in each jurisdiction, in each country, which is a reflection on the literature that exists, which is a reflection on, you know, retrograde menstruation constantly being pushed as the main reason this happens to us when we know that's not the case. Even if you do have symptom relief from diet and lifestyle changes, like you said, actually in the background, your disease can still grow. It's the same as with the hormones just if you have just as if you have symptom relief from the oral contraceptive pill the gnrh agonists and antagonists diet you know the smorgasbord that we have available and as you rightfully pointed out we should be able to make our own decisions regarding those sorts of things even if you do all of those things you still especially in the case of advanced disease you are still going to need expert radical excision we know that there are people that do excision but really they're just excising they are excising what needs to be sent to pathology but they leave disease behind because they don't see it because they're not looking in the right places because they don't have the patient in the correct position so a lot of people are told that oh yes i had a look at your diaphragm by gynecologists who are looking just at the pelvic side because of course they're not trained in doing a video-assisted thoracoscopy or something to look at the chest and visualize any disease in the lung or diaphragm. So there are so many really, really, really complex barriers, right? So throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying excision is expensive, risky, complicated is not the approach. 
You can bring in, you can zhuzh up and fancy imaging and you can bring in whatever you want. But if we know so far, the only thing that's worked for those of us who've had expert excision, and I don't know, I mean, I count myself in that, but I also don't. <laughs> I've had access to it, but did I have what I need? Obviously not. I still really struggle and the disease is still left behind. So just in terms of the, what you mentioned about choice and individual you know individual choice in terms of the modalities that help our symptoms going back to that un convention on the rights of people with disabilities we know that we should be offered the opportunity to be actively involved in these decision making processes policies and programs so that includes things like the guidelines and the national action plan and even if you know, our governments and our leading bodies are telling us, yes, you have this consultation period or when we do the change.org petitions like we have done with Change the Guidelines. When we write our letters to RANSCOG, often the responses are either non-existent, generic or blatantly saying that what we're saying is misinformation when we've got peer-reviewed journal articles in current magazines, uh, scientific journals, that are saying exactly what our lived experience shows, not what the pharmaceutical company or the imaging company or the expert working group with absolutely no background in what has been the gold standard for removal of this disease recommends, which gets misinterpreted by the majority of medical professionals because they don't have time, they're busy, we're in a pandemic. There are so, so many obstacles for us getting the care that we need, the diagnostic care that we need, let alone the actual treatment and therapeutic care. You know, when you're talking about the change of guidelines movement that's been in Australia since March of 2022, and makes me think about the change of the guidelines movement that we had in the United States back in 2017, which I know I mentioned in the episode with Kate from Endo Girls blog, but it's just the the response to, and that petition, it was a very strong petition um, with backing from experts in endometriosis. There was, I believe there was about 8,000 signatures on the petition. There were all kinds of statements from patients who talked about the care that they received from their gynecologist, the gaslighting, the dismissal, the lack of care, the lack of knowledge that the doctors had when treating them. And all of that was presented to ACOG. And, you know, the response, as you said, was just non-existent, right? We're still waiting for the guidelines to be updated, which I think it's reasonable to ask that guidelines be re-examined or guidelines be updated. And I understand that there are different specialties for a reason. So I understand that. And I understand that the doctors do have their medical training. They are so knowledgeable on so many aspects that I, as a patient, as a layperson, don't have any idea about. And I respect them for that. And I, you know, go to them because I am looking for their expertise and their experience and their opinion, because ultimately what the doctor offers is an opinion, right? So part of me understands why doctors or governing bodies may not want to involve the patients 
when talking about care, when making the guidelines, may not want to listen to the patients. But at some point, when there's so many of us banded together, screaming, screaming over and over the same thing, our lives being affected, our quality of life being affected, why can't we be heard? You know, why is our voice not important when we come together? Millions of people. Okay, fine. You have one person in pain. Oh, you have this one person in pelvic pain and they're complaining about their pelvic pain and their care. Okay, you can brush them off. Okay, you have two, you have three, you have five. Now you have millions. You have millions of people complaining about the standard of care. When are we going to be heard? Because ultimately we need the experts in charge. We need the guidelines. We need the literature. Like we are having a great grassroots movement among advocates, among people on social media, among patients, among websites, among support groups. Among, there are so many things, books being written about endometriosis, art, movies. It's amazing how much awareness we are drumming up about how we're talking about this disease, how we're getting it in national newspapers, how we're getting photography and summits. We are getting more awareness, but where's the funding? Where are the changes to the treatment? Awareness can only go so far. And we're just, we're waiting. And as we're waiting, (laughs) some of us have no quality of life. Some of us are just watching our life pass us by as we wait. And it's heartbreaking. And that's why we're angry. That's why we're angry. And that's why we're upset. You know, it's just hard because we're just screaming and not just in pain, but like screaming at the medical professionals and at the medical community at large to take endometriosis seriously. And it looks like it's being taken seriously because there are the governing bodies and there is interest, as you said, and that's wonderful that it's being talked about, that guidelines are being made, but they're not sufficient. And maybe they're not sufficient because the research is not sufficient because they're basing the guidelines on what they believe. Each guideline and each working group bases the guideline on what they believe is the best research out there. And they you know, pick and choose different research and there are discrepancies among the guidelines. Uh, which is quite interesting because you're like, hey, I thought this disease, wouldn't it be treated the same all across the world? But apparently there are discrepancies because they look at different literature and different medical studies. So we need more research. And where are we going to get the money for the research? From awareness? And I guess we're drumming up awareness. I I don't know. It's just where (laughs) it's hard to know where all of this is leading and it can feel very disheartening at the end of the day. Just sort of in conclusion, in terms of the Australian endometriosis guideline and and more specifically our national action plan, which, you know, is being applauded all around the world because I, you know, it's, it's a world first thing that we've, we've got a national action plan, but the three main goals of the action plan were awareness, education, and research. As you've said, awareness isn't enough, and one of the rec- one of the goals of the action plan was that general practitioners, in particular, were going to be provided with a program. A program was going to be implemented, an educational program for general practitioners. I'm not sure if that has come about yet. I I really I I haven't seen any resources. I I don't really know what happened with that. We've had announcements right before an election regarding 
a lot of money being given or being promised to imaging and pain management centers. But to me, that was confusing as it was because we've got the guideline actually emphasizing that there's no evidence that things like anti-neuropathic medication, neuropathic pain medication, which is, you know, something that you would get at a, when you go see a pain specialist, you know, pain management involves the use of some of these medications. It's not the only thing, but that's definitely in, in a lot of our experiences, we end up going down that route when the other tiers of treatment have been exhausted. And then we end up with these comorbidities. But in terms of education and research, if the education and the research, because all of these things are interlinked, they're inextricably linked, right? So when you're mentioning, yes, the discrepancies in the, in the guidelines, that's not only because of the literature that they're reading, which going back to that point, it's all about retrograde menstruation again. It's not only about the literature, it's about who have you got present at these expert working groups? Who, who's actually there? If you have somebody who's interest, like you said, in terms of interest in imaging and interest in, you know, interest in gynecological imaging, interest in, you know, Chinese medicine, then these interests, whether they're research interests, you know, financial interests, whatever you want to call it, these interests are what's going to be reflected in the guideline. And if those interests are not necessarily an indication of what the disease is, what patients actually need and require and what actually works. So if you're a member of this expert working group and you sit in on the panel and you have your opinions heard, that's all good and well and I respect that and you're there in your position and you've gotten to that point obviously through a lot of hard work, etc. But that doesn't mean that when we're talking about endometriosis excision, when we're talking about kidney death, lung collapses, you know, multi-system involvement of the disease, pathogenesis, like all these different things. It doesn't mean that you necessarily have knowledge of that or evidence-based research. In fact, the guideline specifies first off the amount of low evidence or no existing evidence, even with things like the hormonal treatments, which are the first-line treatments and they're all consensus-based and we all agree with that. So where does that leave us? What can we actually say is evidence-based research? Well, we look at the centers that are doing the work that are actually operating in us, that after 20 years of being on birth control, we're having seven-hour surgeries. And then, you know, some of us are doing handstands six weeks after excision surgery. The rest of us are having ablation and then we're needing mobility scooters and walking sticks. I would like to highlight that in Australia, we obviously also have an Indigenous population. So we mentioned people living in rural and remote areas, but that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, Indigenous. But when we're looking at the Indigenous perspective and these sort of, you know, possibly cultural barriers to treatment, um, I've actually just returned from Tasmania. I filmed a, a podcast over there looking at the barriers to healthcare specifically to Tasmania, which we know is... Uh, south of Australia and it's its own little isolated island but then if we're thinking about the care that indigenous endometriosis sufferers might be getting in places like the northern territory or you know you know you're in the middle of the desert what kind of treatments are you getting I have spoken to 
an Indigenous person a couple of years ago who was finding it incredibly hard to even access GP appointments, you know, and it's not only about the access, but even learning about endometriosis, if so much misinformation is online, like you Google endometriosis and the first thing you learn is about your periods and it's all about periods and it's only to do with the uterus and, you know, you will self-gaslight, you know, there's there's internalised ableism that occurs because of this. There's numerous psycho social problems that occur specifically like for our indigenous population as well because maybe even on a I'm a white woman so I can't speak on anybody's behalf besides myself but there are barriers in terms of we already know that there's a huge gap between indigenous people in Australia and the broader population in terms of life expectancy in my previous roles at the Australian Human Rights Commission, although I didn't work directly with the Social Justice Commissioner, I you know, was definitely involved in projects and things. And even back then, health literacy and things like that, it's in these communities, you know, especially remote Aboriginal communities, it's very hard currently, even in terms of if we're talking about diet, you're paying about $12 in some places for a can of diced tomatoes in these remote communities. So how are you going to go to your Chinese acupuncturist and find access to excision there? Because even us, you know, cis, white, privileged people are having these horrible, horrible impacts on our quality of life. What about those more marginalised and more disadvantaged, even in nations like Australia? Thank you so much for bringing that up because that has been a theme that has been coming up in these episodes um, among the different interviewees that we really want to highlight is the access to, we talk often about the access to excision and how difficult it is, but even the access to basic care for many people worldwide is extraordinarily difficult, uh, practically impossible for many communities, millions of people. Having an identity that is, has been historically marginalized and going to the doctor can have a totally different experience than, as you said, a person who is white or a cis woman. The discrimination, the bias, the difficulty to access care, the lack of doctors, basic gynecology in many communities. I think about how privileged I have been. I live in the capital. I have a job where, you know, I have insurance through my company. I am educated. You know, I was able to sit down and read 300 pages of guidelines so that I could learn more about my care. But that's an extreme privilege that most people, the majority of people, don't have. And so, as you said, if people in a very privileged position are fighting so hard to get care, and some of us are accessing good quality care, many of us aren't, what about the people who are not in those positions of privilege, who are being discriminated against, who are facing bias every single day? And this, for me, really highlights that while I'm really happy to hear about advances that are happening in different parts of the world with ultra-advanced laparoscopic equipment, ultra-advanced diagnostic 
MRI or ultrasound equipment. Yes, I want breakthroughs to happen for endometriosis care, but I don't want this to continue to be a situation where only the most privileged get care and then all the rest of the people fall away. There's already an enormous gap in healthcare, in equity. And I just fear that this will continue to get worse. I want to thank you, Alex, for coming on the show today to talk about the care that you've experienced in your country, in Australia, the care that you have witnessed other people experiencing. I know that you're very involved in the community. I know that you speak to a lot of people with endometriosis, especially people with endometriosis in Australia. So you have a pulse of what's going on in Australia. And of course, you don't speak for everyone. And of course, we're just talking generally here about the standard of care, both in Australia and worldwide. But I think we keep seeing that these problems are repeating themselves. These themes are repeating themselves in these episodes with different advocates because these problems are worldwide. There is so many layers and they're so complex and we want to see change and we want to see change from the top down. The reality of living with endometriosis is quite brutal and quite difficult. So thank you for talking about the reality with us today, your own reality and the reality that you've seen from others. And I wish it wasn't the reality. And I wish that these conversations didn't have to be so serious and there didn't have to be so much weight to them, but these are our lives that we're talking about. And that is serious and that carries a lot of weight. I would like to highlight that any opinions that I've expressed today are entirely my own, regardless of any affiliations I may have and any of my advocacy work. They are entirely based on my own experience within these medical systems. And I have experience with Australia and international systems because even if I haven't had surgery overseas, I have had consultations and I have had some treatments. And so, yeah, thank you so much for having me today. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And despite the fact that a lot of this, like you said, is very heavy and it seems very gloom and doom, I think establishing conversation and actually having conversation and and bringing these experiences to the table so if we're not brought to the table that's okay we'll bring ourselves to the table or we'll make our own table but eventually you will have to hear us and eventually we will need to discuss further how patients and the medical system can work together because screaming at each other or ignoring each other is not doing anything either for the patient or even for the medical professionals themselves because they don't want to hear us come into their offices and be disgruntled and hysterical and in a lot of pain. We want to be able to get to a point where we can communicate with each other and really get endometriosis diagnosis and treatment to the standard that it should be. I think as patients, we just want to be heard. And with endometriosis, Most of us haven't been heard. We haven't been heard when we complained about our symptoms. We haven't been heard when we complained about our suffering. We haven't been heard when we talked about how this is affecting our lives or how we need accommodations or how we can't get out of bed. We have not been heard and we are trying to be heard. And 
I have a lot of respect for medical professionals. I have a lot of respect for the medical community, but there's also a lot of problems within the overarching medical system along the research. There are whole books written about, as you said, how is research funded? Well, it depends on the interest. You know, how are medical papers? Um, how do they come out typically? Well, it depends on the money and the interest. There's books upon books about gaslighting, especially towards people assigned female at birth, bias and discrimination and racism that is within the healthcare community, the overarching medical system. These are not secrets. You know, these are not exaggerations. These are huge issues that we're facing. And so having these conversations, bringing awareness, hopefully will lead to change. And that's all we want is we want change. We can't live like this. Just before we go, since you mentioned gaslighting, I would like to promote a wonderful book that's been written by Sylvia Young, who is the director of FemTruth and FemTruth Youth, as well as a play called Gaslit, obviously about the same topic. And I was fortunate enough to be asked by Sylvia to provide some very small analyses of, of the Australian healthcare system, as well as the Romanian medical system, because, you know, I, I was born there and I sort of have some sort of understanding of, of both countries. And I'm so, so grateful to have been part of that. But it's going to come out in May and you can pre-order it on Amazon. It's called Good Girl, Bad Period. Now, obviously, we know endometriosis doesn't just affect women, and the, the book is a more general look at misogyny and medical gaslighting in healthcare and about the standards of care all around the world. So there are so many stories. There's hundreds of stories from people both with this disease and, and, and there's expert opinions. So I strongly recommend having a look at it. You can find us on Amazon, Good Girl, Bad Period by Sylvia Young. Great. I'll go ahead and I'll link that in the show notes for anyone who's interested. And that's coming out in May of 2023. Well, I think that's what we need is we need to hear more voices. The more voices that are collectively put together, the louder we are. And hopefully the more seriously we're going to be taken. <laughs>